Welcome to Threats, a podcast from leaders about the changing sports media landscape and the conditions that threaten to undermine the traditional model. My name is James Emmett, I'm the editor-at-large at Leaders. And my name is Simon Bryden and I'm the head of sport at Cinemedia. And together we are going to be identifying the challenges keeping sports media leaders up at night. And alongside a handful of eminent industry guests, we're going to be suggesting a few ways they can sleep more easily in their beds at night. Simon Bryden, what an absolute treat to see you in the studio again. How are you doing? I'm very well, thanks, James. Lovely to be here. You look positively fizzing with energy and ideas at the moment. It's almost as if, you know, this series about threats hasn't, you know, it's not getting you down. You're ready to go. You're, you're, you're buzzing with positivity. I am always buzzing with positivity. Good. Yeah. Well, it's nice to hear. Um, Simon, you've been joining us here in the Leader Studio for the last few weeks to record this um, series on the threats to the um, traditional sports media model. Um, For those of you in the back who have not been paying attention, we've done two in this series of three already. We've had um, one football's Reese Beer and uh, former head of digital at Canal Plus, Sebastian Odu, join us thus far. And we focused in on two of the three major threats that we've identified um, as um, the major threats undermining the sports media model. We've done um, choice and price. We've done viewing habits and Gen Z. And we were all set today um, to bring on our third and final guest and to talk about um, fragmentation as the, the third and final threat. But you've had an epiphany, Simon. Well, I think we've covered fragmentation. We, we have know, a choice. Yeah. You know, fragmented media market. So, you know, I think innovation and technology, it's a major threat. But of course, it's also a major opportunity. We see with the plethora of services, the ease to now set up, everyone's a broadcaster. Everyone's got a camera and a means to stream live in their pocket. Technology is a major threat, but it's also a major innovation. And that's why I think having our our guest who's about to join us, Sharon Fuller from an organization I admire enormously, the NBA. I think she's a perfect guest to talk about what they're doing around innovation. And Yeah, Sharon, uh, I mean, yes, very well kind of um, introduced there, Simon. Sharon um, is about to join us, um, and she is the AVP of Content and Social for EME um, for the NBA. Um, she recently joined them. She joined in February. She's based in Madrid. Um, but uh, Sharon has made rather a name for herself across her career in um, sports content as an innovator. Um, different forms of content for different sorts of audiences. She's a um, production specialist. She spent some time um, with the e-scooter championship setting up their content offering. Um, she spent three years at Red Bull Media House running their content globally. Um, and you don't do that without a head for innovation. Um, and before that, she was at the BBC, which um, is is known for innovation. Who knows? Maybe in the early days, it was known for innovation. Um, but but she was, you know, fighting against the tide at the, the BBC a little bit. She was always known for um, pushing the envelope. Um, and now at the NBA, um, she is, well, she's doing the same again. She's uh, running all sorts of content um, streams across all sorts of different platforms. Simon, do you have something to say before we bring Sharon on? 
Uh, welcome to Sharon. It's great <laughs> to have you here, Sharon. And I should just point out to James that I think you'll find the BBC started broadcasting. So they were the first, therefore, the first innovator. You're absolutely right, of course. Um, and we love all the people involved at the BBC. Great folks. Anyway, let's bring Sharon on. Hello, Sharon. Sharon, you're in Madrid, um, aka-ing as an NBA executive. Tell us a little bit about the role to begin with. Hello, it's nice to talk to you again. Um, so I am the head of content and social for Europe and the Middle East uh, for the NBA. Um, I should also mention that I very recently joined the NBA, so just for context in some of my answers. Um, my role is really to help build fandom for the NBA in our markets. Um, and that means trying to figure out the best way to engage them in the long term, the short term, um, to think about what it is that everybody might love about the NBA and help them find a touch point for it all the way through to our brilliant and wonderful um, direct-to-consumer app and how we can help build the audiences there. Mm-hmm. Is this your first interview as an NBA exec? It actually is, yeah. Wow, what a privilege. Thank you. Um, and good luck. Um <laughs> No, I didn't mean that to be so threatening. <laughs> <laughs> that so, this, threatening. So, so this so this series is about threats, not threats to you, Sharon, um, but threats to the traditional sports broadcast model. I guess what we mean by that is the traditional way that rights holders have been able to monetize media rights over, you know, decades, which is kind of packaging cycles of rights up three, four years and selling them off, usually on an exclusive basis to um, broadcast entities who pay uh, or who have different rationale for paying rights fees, basically. That model, we believe, is under threat at the moment question to you do you agree that it's under threat and what do you see as the single biggest threat to it so I think it's different for different sports and I think that broadcast is always going to be a really important part of the mix um, because you have to have a combination of really broad reach platforms as well as um, more specific verticals so in terms of the risk I think if you're looking at the way that those deals are constructed um, it's how that mix comes together when you're looking at cross-market deals, so they're less specifically country-related, you might go for a bigger partner across a number of different territories. I think that also a lot of those rights um, agreements are getting longer. So if you look at some of the models recently outside of football, a lot of people are going for longer rights agreements than they maybe have had in the past, um, or they're shortening them to be able to match up with other windows to create more opportunity of lots of contracts coming to an end at the same time. Um, and then the other thing I think is really interesting is where you have a model like Discovery, where they have gone also more into the development of the events and the ownership of the events themselves. So actually being acting as the promoter of the event, as well as the rights holder, and therefore controlling those properties um, in a much broader way across different types of the vertical that that property might have available. So I think that that's, that's a super interesting model and obviously doesn't work for everybody. But to be able to be invested in and effectively own a sport for a long contract of, say, 10 years is a really different way of looking at things. Whether you're creating an event IP yourself or looking at original 
content it's kind of a, a, a very similar thing where you people are trying to own more of a piece of something Yes, and it's not, that's absolutely not the traditional model of kind of leasing rights out uh, on, a, on a particular kind of yearly basis. And, and I guess, Sharon, you, you mentioned discovery there, but um, you yourself have had experience in this field with Red Bull mainly, I suppose, which uh, obviously Red Bull Media House, Red Bull, the shining example of a yeah, let's call them a sports marketing firm, um, who have built up a suite of properties that they own and probably have different monetization kind of rationale for. Um, talk a little bit more about some of the successes and some of the not-so-successes maybe at Red Bull when it comes to that kind of that model. So I think um, there's a couple of different things to consider when you look at what they do. One is because it involves athletes that that also compete in those events, some of which belong to Red Bull and some of which don't. Actually, the the, the balance around um, how you do the storytelling around those events to remain credible is something worth considering. Because if you then go into distribute the broadcast of those events, then you have to also be able to stand up the editorial. And obviously, Red Bull athletes have a, a good chance of winning those events, but they also aren't always necessarily going to win them. So it's, it was always super important to keep that credibility from the content perspective, which is which is not always so straightforward when you're on one side of the when you're on one side of the fence. Um, I think what's really successful is those events that they created. They have a fear of missing out, and people care about the outcomes of those events. Um, and also because they're so incredibly well marketed across social media that even if you didn't see the live thing itself, you heard about it, saw about it. And the way that they do content distribution across all different types, whether that's how you work together with comms, PR, uh, marketing, uh, watch the events themselves. There are so many different touch points that you have with those events that that's part of what makes them successful. Mm. We've just established just before we came on on air that you may well have met Simon at a Sportel um, in years gone past, and I do remember sort of having sort of thinking to myself, I wonder what Red Bull are doing here. You know, when Red Bull used to take people to Sportel, I guess you probably went with Red Bull when, when I did you, when you were with them. <laughs> What were you selling stuff? Like, were you actually sort of receiving money for media rights when you were there? What was the the sort of Red Bull approach to distributing its? its well, we stuff? were we were distributing and acquiring rights at Sportel. Uh-huh. Aha. Okay. Um, so um, part of my remit at the time was to look for properties which Red Bull Media House could help up level or own or already had Red Bull athletes competing in, but were somebody else's property, or we could go in as a partner up-level them from a content perspective and make them into something bigger than they currently were by putting the whole Red Bull machine behind it on the basis of them putting those rights on Red Bull TV and having some level of exclusivity in exchange for the investment. So it wasn't necessarily a rights acquisition, but it would be a partnership with those sports to help them grow. And I think that that was a super smart model to then also have the Red Bull marketing machine behind a sport that was maybe... Um, a third tier and take it up to a second tier where to the point where somebody else might see value in it and buy it for 10 years and want to become the promoter of it for example 
So I think that that was super interesting. On the distribution side, we had certain products um, from a content perspective that were designed specifically for distribution. So when we were looking at the creation of events, and I would use the example of Red Bull Cliff Diving, this format was designed from the, the rundown of the event itself to be optimised for a third-party broadcast to do the, the best possible chance of being able to distribute those those events. Not all events were, were done in that way, but it was invented as a series specifically for distribution to try and leverage those partners. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I guess discoverability is one of the kind of... It's it's one of the core threats that we've identified, right? For the um, you know this this era of sports distribution, and, and I'd suggest that even though it's very difficult, just sticking with Red Bull, very difficult to go about your daily life without being aware of Red Bull uh, through traditional branding, probably discoverability must have been one of the one of the major issues for you guys, right? To to actually get the content out, to get the content seen. So I guess um, how we would look at success would be a whole range of things. And it's about all of the different touch points that you would have with a piece of event content. So the also the account health and the way that the the social media accounts were built was really to maximize the reach of those things when they happen um, and to create the content in a way which makes it super engaging so that you might stop and watch it. And obviously, so we would commission, say, for example, like what's the one shot in this event? that we would cut out to put on our social channels before we even did the event. So we'd really think about actually commissioning the social content as part of how the event is shot to enable us to have the best assets to then put on our social channels. But the social reach is so huge across all of the social channels, but also the other part of it was really about being local specific um, and having not only different sport verticals, but also having country specific verticals where you know that a local team is going to be able to promote something, say, take Spain as an example, that you have it in Spanish language as well as in bike. So you would have different verticals and different ways of crossing over those audiences to maximise the opportunity, as well as obviously all of the athletes who take part, who you have some relationship with, they also help amplify. The people who work there help amplify. The um, platforms help amplify. There's a paid strategy behind it. It's very hard to avoid something if everyone wants you to see it. Yeah, I'm a great admirer of Red Bull's marketing. I mean, it took a great point, you know, my love of cycling and broadcasting. Well, uh, in Belgium, Wout van Aert is a national hero, top three cyclist in the world, uh, a phenomena. And he's wearing his team colours, but he has a Red Bull helmet on. And to many people, that might be crazy. But in Belgium... He is the biggest star in their sport. And Red Bull are reaching the biggest audience with one man in a group of 220 cyclists through Wout van Aert. So, you know, you've got to be local. We have, we talked earlier, uh, but you have to think locally as to what the sport is in each market. Mm-hmm. Um, Sharon, let's, um, let's spool forwards to present day and your, um, your new role at the MBA. Simon and I, um, recording this series, we've had multiple conversations about the amazing MBA app, which you mentioned earlier, of course, but 
I think we it's hard to get someone who doesn't agree that it's kind of you know best in class and really delivers a lot of value for um, users but it delivers a lot of value for free right when it comes to thinking about broadcast models and I wonder when you are being shown the ropes at the NBA which maybe you still are you're being kind of inducted um, shown around given the, the tour shown what the content bits and pieces are how does it all fit together how is it presented to you as a newcomer to the organization and you know are kind of challenges pointed out to you so maybe uh maybe i put it in this context we here in the in the europe and the middle east office are really trying to help build fandom across our different markets and in different languages and so as part of that we have to think about the whole fan journey And the whole fan journey means everything from the first post you see on social media all the way through to potentially subscribing to League Pass and what the value is for a fan who might subscribe to League Pass. And so part part of my role for our markets is to help grow fandom, but across all the different levels of what fandom means and in all of those different countries. So what the opportunity is for us is to imagine, like, what's the French fan's journey from seeing a post on social to a local ID page to potentially subscribing, bearing in mind the challenge we have around the time difference. What's the thing that they want to know about what happens in the sport overnight when they wake up in the morning and how do we get that to them? So it's a really awesome opportunity to think about how we complement what's already there from the US perspective and also from an English language perspective to really think about digging deep into content verticals for France, Spain, Italy, for example, and coming up with original formats that can be executed in 360 degrees across those different things. On the one hand, we know that some people love sneakers. And on the other hand, we know that people deeply are excited about Victor Wembanyama joining the NBA and potentially being the first draft pick. But that's a big spectrum of people across a a range of different countries. So actually, I think um, rather than thinking about it as, as platforms, it's much more about what's the fan journey and what's the right fan journey for each market and how do we engage those people, whether they're just a casual fan or they're interested, broadly interested or whether they're a core fan and we want to keep them coming back over and over by having plenty of relevant original content as well as events. Yeah, I think there's two things there that have just sort of uh, struck me. Um, one is around... You talk about the fan journey and is it as simple as you are trying to give an appropriate journey to different demographics of fan to ultimately funnel them down to a league pass purchase like that's the ultimate is that the case or or not um and then there's another thing around understanding what content to fit to what audiences what's the process for that and how do you ensure that you're not losing people let's maybe stick it's probably a yes or no question that 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 funnel (laughs) thing is that the goal for everyone so not everyone is going to go all the way down the funnel so we when we're looking at what our success measures are obviously we have certain objectives around people having nba ids but we also look at the amount of time that they spend with us So if we're looking at social channels, we know that someone will spend less time with those channels, um, but it doesn't mean that they are less valuable to us. They're just differently valuable. And obviously, ultimately, you want to try and move people down the funnel, but you have to give people a reason and value and you have to. It takes time to build fandom with new fans versus people who are already interested. So not everyone's going to come down the funnel and it takes time. But if you build the right strategy, you can move people incrementally along. Mm hmm. 
And then to try and articulate a better question for this second thing, um, I think with the traditional rights model, there's um, a reliance on live rights from rights holders. Like, that's the be-all and end-all. That's the most valuable thing. Let's package that up and send it out and lease it away for three to five years or whatever. And then over to the broadcasters to, to make the best of it and to reach the most people to it. But job done as far as the rights holders concerned. We've got the money. Clearly, you know, the major leagues woke up to this decades ago, there is a, a a need and a requirement for engaging shoulder programming, shoulder content, and, and that it's that thing that has developed into this plethora of digital content that is available now from leading rights holders like the NBA. I guess the question is, um, what's the rationale for fitting the right content to the right audience and you know is there an assumption that a gen z person in france is going to want a certain sort of content and that sort of content is going to do a certain job for the mba so obviously the answer is audience research and testing so we are looking into the different people in different markets and and really identifying what their kind of behaviors are when it comes to sports participation of sports as well as watching sports So broadly, you can't do everything for everybody. So we have to choose the key focus growth areas for us. Um, And for example, we know that we have um, a large fan base in Germany. Uh, So our team worked on what does a weekly format look like for Germany because we need a format where people will come back regularly. Um, We build out the series as a brand. It's called NBA Undrafted. Um, We also then work with the undrafted talent to create localised, we call it influencer commentary on some of our feeds. So it's in language, but it's also with the same talent all the way through and you're building a relationship with them. And ultimately, that relationship starts in social media. Uh, And if you like what you see on social media in, in German language, you might watch some of the clips on YouTube and then you might be interested to watch the full shows. Um, behind the ID and then you might even go all the way through the journey and follow those talent to the point where you are watching and listening to their commentary in German language and we have been testing this type of thing and it works and we know that it works and it's really effective in moving people through the funnel and so therefore when you take those learnings you then look at the other markets which are at a similar level of fandom kind of make the cross references uh, with, with other business objectives as well, obviously. And then we start to build different things. Like in Spain, we have a fun club, which is in Spanish language and offers competitions and prizes, but also unique and specific content for the Spanish market because we know the proliferation of, uh, of English speaking is less than 50%. So we want to make sure that we're not those people who are already fans aren't missing out. So we have enough volume of localized content that when they go into the app that they have enough other things to watch outside of the actual matches all the way through to actually creating awareness of the fact that we have content in Spanish language that might be relevant to audiences so a little bit is I mean a large part is based on research and and testing and audience testing and feedback but another part is trying things being able to measure those connected journeys which is obviously super important and then building on the learnings that we know work. I'm Max Barnett from Delta Trey. And I'm David Kushnan from Leaders. And in season one of The Blueprint, our podcast series on strategic thinking in sport, we chatted with strategic leaders from the Football Association, Formula E, Seattle Sounders, New York Jets, New York Yankees and Sky Sports. 
fascinating in-depth conversations with people at the heart of conceptualizing, executing, and delivering on strategy. And great news, Max, we've got a second series. We're gonna have another set of conversations, and this time we want to dig into the heart of great strategy with people who are deep in the weeds of doing it day in, day out. Yeah, DC, and if season one was very much around the why and the what and some great conversations there, second season is really getting into the how of how people are executing strategy, because it's often not publicly shared and uh, we're not really seeing the day-to-day in terms of the execution. So we're putting the call out to you, the sports industry, if you know someone who is doing this stuff brilliantly or differently, let us know. david.cushnan at leadersinsport.com or at davidcushnan on Twitter or via either of us on LinkedIn. And join us soon for season two of The Blueprint. We're looking forward to it from Delta Trey and Leaders. I've got a question, actually. How how much do you think the sort of culture of NBA and basketball in the United States, there's a, as well as a sport, there's a massive culture around it, a certain uh, coolness, a certain street cred. It's got a... The sneaker thing. The sneaker sure. thing, the fashion, the, 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 you know, how much does that culture from the States come into the culture in these developing markets? So... You're not just engaging people who want or like watching basketball. You're engaging a generation around a cultural phenomena or something, which is helps you drive engagement. And generally speaking, a lot of our kind of casual fans are people who connect with the brand of the NBA and what it stands for before they get into really... Some of those people might not ever watch a game, but they're still really valuable audience for us. Um, and that's part of our research. And we also make content in this area. So the the NBA sneaker uh, Instagram account is huge in its own right, which is just to, doing photos of what the guys are wearing on the court every week. Um, and so sneaker culture is a big part of that, which is why I mention it. But as we start to build out our content mix, we definitely think about what does it mean from a cultural perspective and, and, and some of those formats that we work on will be culture first. And we'll also tap into not only the culture and the values of the sport, but sort of more broadly into the wider world of basketball as well. Hmm. Yeah, having had uh, two teenage boys at high school in New York playing basketball, uh, I've uh, been a victim of sneaker culture. What are you wearing today, Simon? <laughs> uh, uh, what, what would you decide? Slip on loafers. Uh, I'd say Gucci. <laughs> Classic. Um, Sharon, the, the, there are all sorts of threats to the way that the traditional broadcast model works, but underlying all of them is this sort of looming possibility of piracy, right? The piracy is the alternative for the consumer away from the you know legitimate traditional means. And with an example like the NBA, it's an organization that has a successful rights model and a full media house and suite of international content to suit all sorts of people. Why on earth would anyone turn to piracy in your view? This is a slightly difficult one for me because it's not my area of expertise. So, so let me tell you my general thinking. In your, um, personal, in your personal my, view, yeah. So... We have to be realistic and know that we are in a cost of living crisis in the world. And also, if you're creating something that people really want to, uh, if people really want to engage with it, they will go to quite some length to be able to do that. So on the one hand, I, I understand it. 
On the other hand, it means that maybe the offer isn't right or the range of offers aren't right from a financial perspective for the fan. And I think you have to have that mix of uh, different levels of value and different levels of access for the fan. And I go back to my um, my previous life at the BBC before Red Bull and talk about match of the day and why it still has an audience when you know that it's free to air, when you know that the football results are available whenever you want them on a website for free or on Twitter, but that, that show still has an audience because it's free, but it's still not the same level of, of coverage that you get on other channels. So I, I, I understand uh, why fans would want to pirate stuff. I don't support it, and I, but I do understand it. Well, I, I, the NBA also have a slightly different approach to certain piracy than some other organisations. I, I know the head of anti-piracy at the NBA very well, and he's a fantastic uh, man, and they do a great job. Uh, very admiring of what the team do. But the other thing they do there is because, I guess, what we spoke about the culture of NBA is they have been uh, very forgiving about allowing kids to upload to YouTube and to social media yeah. and seeking to monetize that content that is being pirated mm -hmm. uh, but is on those social media. So the NBA have been progressive around that to support that younger audience whilst then taking action on the piracy of live games, the rebroadcasting, going after the pirate services. So I think their approach on social has been very interesting. They don't want to alienate the audience. They want to let these kids have their moment of showing, look what I've got. Mm. And then they are logo scanning uh, those clips and they're counting the logos and, you know, they're billing their the eyeballs for their sponsors. Those might be, in theory, pirated viewings, but they're still also valuable uh, valuable acreage for the sponsors, etc. So I think the NBA have done some very interesting things around that. Mm. Meanwhile, of course, being very robust at tackling mm -hmm. and understanding the global, uh, the global position on piracy. So I'm very admiring of what they're doing. Mm. On Simon, on a, um, a different episode uh, in this series, we talked about appetite for risk among rights holders and why that might be different depending on where they sit relative to each other and it strikes me that sports with simply a, a lot of content you know a lot naturally a lot of content sports that play hundreds and hundreds of games a year you're a big major league baseball fan they have a lot of content yeah. the nba has hundreds of games a year you know and seasons within seasons yep. um is it easier for the NBA or Major League Baseball to take a, a sort of softly, softly approach with potential rights infringements? Uh, it, it is easier because they're able to... They are often, of course, acting in support of their broadcast partners. Mm. They are selling rights, and of course, they then need to support those broadcasters in taking action to help maintain and increase the value. You know, it's mm. it's it's not just to their own service, not just to the NBA's D2C services that they're acting. They're helping protect their broadcasters' investment. Mm. So they're they are doing that. But of course, the easier thing with the NBA is that they control everything. I'm sure for for you, um, it it's great because you've got access to every clip. You've got all of the contents available to help promote and engage the fan. And that makes uh, the, the, the ability to offer a central service better. Uh, 
I, I'm only just a bit surprised that the NBA have, you know, everything's gone in-house this year, new D2C service directly, mm. you know, their own setup. Uh, you know, the apps have always been NBA, but taking their streaming in-house this year, I'm surprised that took, uh, you know, a bit of time. But uh, anyway. Where was that before? Was that with Bantech before? Uh, no, it wasn't. It was with... Um, Putting you on the spot here. Uh, no, you're not, actually. Mm. It was with uh, my old... Uh, people that used to own my old business at New Lion, and ah. then of course that became Endeavor right. Streaming. Right. Um, so that has gone in house, mm-hmm. in the, like this season. Mm-hmm. Sharon, what's your view on that? Um, that that idea that you know the NBA is one of the major leagues with so much live content and therefore so much need to. I mean, it's it's a double edged sword, right? You've got to promote a lot of stuff. But equally, you've got a lot of stuff to do a lot of things with. It, it's totally true. We we have um, a huge opportunity, but also we want to be locally relevant. So on the one hand, you know, we're, we're, we're looking at what our touch points are with international players. And I'm not sure if you know, but at the moment, the, the majority of the top five best players in the league are from Europe. Um, which is the first time in the history that this has happened in the league. So uh, we have a great opportunity with our players uh, and the markets that they are interesting to, to actually not only promote the games, but really build the stars in terms of the players and really build that um, following and interest in the individuals who are locally relevant. And so on the one hand, yes, we have lots of games, but right now, especially when we're in the playoffs, we have a lot of things that matter as well. So it's also about really picking out the things that matter to our audience. So we do have a great opportunity. We do have lots of access, but we do really, really support our broadcast partners as well. Um, and if you look into the into the app, you can also watch some of our broadcast partner content in the app. It's not that we're creating everything all on our own. So uh, it is a pull together of also our partners and our partners' content in different languages. Um, so I think that that for me is something that's really interesting. And having had the the pleasure in my first two weeks to go to see the full operation of how this is delivered um, in New Jersey, it's it's an impressive, really impressive setup. Um, where they're really thinking about how those international feeds are presented to to the audience in in lots and lots of different ways, but balanced with um, okay. So some of the games might be on at midnight. Uh, on a a Saturday night so how do you make that something that people really care about enough to go watch and that's really all about building the stories building the heroes and 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 people knowing what what each game means and and why it's important yeah I don't know if you've been to Athens recently but it's pretty hard to move without seeing a Janus. 25 (laughs) but anyway it's he's you know you, you need more you need stars yeah exactly you know you need Big stars, uh, uh, the more uh, around the world, the better from the fan engagement. And uh, NBA have been very lucky. It's obviously a very strong sport in the Balkans. Oh, it's it's not luck. It's definitely a strategy. I mean... Yeah. <laughs> you, well, but I, I, you don't I get sit, number one draft picks by luck. Hmm. Um, it's it's, yeah. it's that I, I sit here in Madrid with um, part of the basketball operations team and we all work super closely together and we know where they're going to do junior NBA camps and how they're doing training and how they're rolling out the grassroots participation programs and have been for 10, 15 years to get to the point where you have a player like Yanis come in. Hmm. Um, thinking about uh, change in general and the, the idea of um, individuals, organisations, rights holders, broadcasters, whatever, um, adapting, evolving um, to suit the times. 
you know, a few months into the job there, Sharon, how are you, how are you finding, I mean, the MBA is, is, is acknowledged as a very forward looking um, and innovative organisation when it comes to this part of the business anyway. But what's your initial impression on how change works in the MBA, how people are empowered to come up with new ideas and push things forward? What I absolutely love about this organisation is the fact that you have the chance to build business cases and build new ideas as long as it's serving a business purpose. Um, And also the way that the departments work together. So there's one particular initiative where we've been working, the content team and the marketing team have developed it together to help actually build out some more locally relevant websites and, and, and app landing pages. And this has been some a process that we've developed together. I mean, I've I've only been here three months. We've already got a new project across the line that we know is going to be developed over the next 12 months that we get some funding to support and some uh, international support from the team in New York. So uh, to be able to come in, be part of this project and already be starting to deliver those things, I think shows the sense of how the organisation works and how they listen to ideas and the fact that you have the channels to be able to share those ideas to get feedback on those ideas and then potentially to get them put through for for a business pilot. Mm. And and what have you found into obviously your um you have a history and a reputation in production you you had your own production company before you joined the MBA and what are you finding in terms of the MBA's approach to putting resource to the creation of content, even if it is only going to be shown on a digital channel uh, targeted at a particular market. You know, one of the things that that Simon has pointed out on this series before is that, you know, the internet isn't cheap. Just because it's digital, it doesn't mean that it is automatically going to be uh, a lot less expensive than if you were producing something for traditional television. Presume the MBA is ready and willing to spend on content, right? It sure is. And, and also we have we work closely with our partnerships team to help leverage our partners as well. So um, so sometimes we're creating branded content with brands as well as with the NBA. So across our team, when we talk about original content, we have original content formats for ourselves. Also, sometimes for third party platforms um, and we look at everything from podcasts to editorial articles um, all the way through to like a high end doc series. Uh, and obviously those things. Uh, the budget is balanced depending on what the potential audience might be for those things as well. We have the data and research to be able to go back up and test those ideas before we commit a big a big chunk of money. But um, the willingness is there. We just have to balance out the priorities, obviously, because we can't do everything. And by the way, shouldn't do everything all at once, um, because then you wouldn't be able to put the support behind it to get the eyeballs to the content, to build the full vertical language plan around it and to be able to build a 360 degree execution around a central idea. And it's, it's a balance. So obviously we have, uh, we have to think about how we create repeatable formats and how we shape things into things that can be reused, redone, um, when we have the opportunity to capture content that we think about all of the different potential uses of that, which is just normal kind of practice in, in being efficient. But the other side of that is there's an openness to try different creative ideas and creative approaches. That means that we are thinking a little bit differently about how we build a narrative or 
or um, how we create a format that can be reused that we might not have done before. So even again, in my first three months, we had the opportunity, we had one hour with Alan, Alan Iverson. And Alan Iverson is not someone who we've had lots of access to in the past. And we had the opportunity to take him to a green screen studio for a sit down interview. The outcome of this, uh, which was, uh, and the interview was done with Thierry Henry, so it wasn't a small talent either. Um, and the outcome of this will be uh, a 20 minute sit down interview slash mini documentary that goes into the NBA app um, that's released sometime in the summer but this has been built in a different way using an innovative technique and also will have a full execution plan around all of the clips and and the social assets that will be created from that so the value is maximized. Mm -hmm. Uh, Sharon you talk about you know the funnel and getting these engaged fans you know, potentially into subscribers to NBA League Pass. And given, you know, the proliferation of OTT options and fragmentation, how important is not necessarily the subscription for that League Pass, but how important is the ability to use interactive technology to push other offers, the merchandise, you know, other advertising to engage that? What's the balance, you know, between merchandising and the other commercial revenues via subscription so when we talk about um, nba ids those are the those are the free ids and so obviously we are building a plan where we create value for the signing in of an id as well as for league pass Um, and if you are in an id environment and we have your details then we are surfacing a more personalized experience as things progress with our direct-to-consumer app um, so right now, um, we're in the relatively early days of this. We have push alerts, but then they tend to be content first rather than about merchandise. But we have competitions. We have our fantasy game. We have the bracket challenge right now where there's prizes involved. So there's usually, if we're pushing something to you, a value exchange rather than us just directly trying to sell you something. That's not really how we work. Um, I guess the other thing to mention there is whatever we do has to be relevant in that market and in that language. So it's also not that we do things blanket across all of those different markets. We really do think about what's in the newsletter for the French market, for example, or what's in the, um, which push alert would we send that would be relevant outside of the US and in the right time zone. Mm-hmm. Um, Sharon, final question from me at least, and that is the kind of what's inspiring you um, at the moment question. And on, on other episodes in this series, we've, had the example of the Major League Soccer and Apple deal as one that a lot of industry observers will be observing and seeing how that plays out. Um, I'm particularly interested in the the kind of rise in fantasy football in the UK. Um, 12 million users of the fantasy game there and a whole range of quite sophisticated content built up around it now. Just aching for commercialization, it seems. What what are you seeing out there in the, in the big bad world that um, has piqued your attention? So what's super interesting is some of the low cost content pieces that are being made that are getting quite long engagement times. Um, and that's the combination of influences and events. Um, for me, this is super interesting. It's commercial. There's a value exchange in the relationship. That would be one thing to look at. I guess if I'm looking at it purely from a... Con- so con- just just to clarify that, Sharon, sorry, is that having an influencer at an event producing their own content? 
it's having a relationship with an influencer across a whole season and building okay. uh, building a profile together um, and not only doing for one example, thing with them. For example, what Amelia de Moldenberg seems to be doing in women's football. Exactly, exactly. Um, but the other thing, purely from a content perspective, is I think Welcome to Wrexham is the new drive to survive. <laughs> is that, and I think that's your new catchphrase, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, I know that Jump you and I survive. have, I think you and I have spoken about Drive to Survive before, which is a constructed reality yeah. TV show and not a behind the scenes series. Um, and I think that people don't necessarily understand what it takes to make something like that work. And obviously there are certain ways in which it can be formatted and replicated. But on the other hand, the value of something like Welcome to Wrexham, which was really much more community focused, was really thinking about how it's giving something back. The narrative is constructed in a kind of meaningful way, where you see that there's a value for that beyond just here's some celebrities coming in with a bunch of money that I think that people really appreciate. And obviously has a knock on effect, not only to the merch sales, the rights, even how it has impact on the league and how the league is covered live from one series, I think something like that, which has that real world impact on people, real actual people. I think that that for me is the thing that's um, that's really interesting because there will be a next Welcome to Wrexham and I'm not sure what that is, but I'm sure it's gonna be awesome. Well, it's the difference between a clear story, right? That it's a, a well thought through multi-pronged story, which Welcome to Wrexham is and has, and something that is maybe the bones of a story that is then spun out again and again and again in a kind of, you know, American sitcom returns for season seven sort of way, I guess. It's often overused but uh, or used wrongly, but authentic. It's mm. got to be, you spoke there, Sharon, it's got to be real. Mm. Yeah. yeah. It has to feel yeah. real. Yeah, it has to. <laughs> but often to feel real, it has to be real. Oh, yeah. I don't know. I don't know. I'm not sure. Welcome to Exxon's real. No. Mm. <laughs> well, I, I think it is real, and I think there's a genuine, you know, desire for change and to do something that is real. You know, it might be semi-constructed, but I think you know, you just have to see the passion. That's not fake. That's not created. That's not. <laughs> that's not actually acting. Uh, I think that is real. The emotions are real. So uh, I think I think it is authentic in that sense. Mm. I wonder how long Box to Box are going to spin it out. That's uh, <laughs> they're on a gravy train, aren't they? They're doing um, all right. Anyway, <laughs> they're doing they're doing all right. Um, Sharon Fuller, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. It was lovely to talk to you again. Thank you, Sharon. Bye.